Welcome to the Poetry of Reality podcast. If you're hearing this, it means that you're on the public feed. You get episodes a week late and you hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscribers feed by going to thepoetryofreality.com and becoming a supporter with immediate access to each episode and no ads. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing my podcast. Thank you so much for your support. G'day. Welcome. A full house. Fantastic. I'm Josh Zepps. I host the afternoon show on ABC Radio in Sydney, and I came up just for this because I'm so excited. Uh, I also have a podcast called Uncomfortable Conversations. I won't talk any more about myself. That's the end. We're all here for Richard, who in 1976 wrote a book that changed the world, The Selfish Gene, in which for the first time he made the case that it's really genes not individuals or groups that are the driving force behind evolution. It was a revolutionary idea, and now it's standard science. He's founded the Richard Dawkins Foundation for Reason and Science and has become a best-selling popularizer of science through so many books, so many classics, the instant they were published, The Blind Watchmaker, Climbing Mount Improbable, Unweaving the Rainbow. And then in 2006, he rocked the world again with The God Delusion, which firmly placed him as one of the sort of leading atheists of the post 9-11 movement. He has written a two-part autobiography. He's a member of the Royal Society. Without any further ado, please welcome one of the world's most beloved and influential minds, Richard Dawkins. Richard, how are you? Great, thank you. We last met in Philadelphia at an event much like this in the week of Donald Trump's election. He wasn't elected. <laughs> Only by the electoral college, it doesn't count. <laughs> we're going to spend the next 90 minutes talking about the American electoral process. And we were all shell-shocked. Brexit had just happened. You remember what the end of 2016 was like when everyone had assumed that Hillary was going to win and that Brexit wouldn't pass. And I'm interested in your sense, Richard, whether the world is more or less sane now, seven years on, than you might have feared it would be in 2016. Well, we got rid of that awful man, uh, and Uncle Joe is actually, you know, decent enough fellow. Um, now we've got Putin, though, which is a disaster, um, so it's difficult to say. What do you make of the world's response to Putin? Well, it's pretty good, I think. I mean, what shocks me is that anybody is in favour of him anywhere in the world, but it seems to be a few people are. There is a whole movement of sort of self-flagellation in the West about that, and we don't have to dwell on Ukraine, but since you mentioned Putin, that I see quite a lot, especially on social media, of, well, NATO shouldn't have expanded to the east, and really this is a, a, a sort of a US proxy war and a provocation, and you must understand Ukraine's only a few decades old anyway. Do you notice that? Yes. I mean, it's, it's um, yeah, it's disquieting. It's, 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 an, it's annoying. It's, it's the Russian propaganda line, and, and apparently... Large numbers of Russians believe it, which is distressing. But um, I hope nobody outside Russia falls for it, aren't many. Well, they are. Yeah. I care less about the Russians who believe it and more about our fellow country people. There aren't not many of them, though. You don't spend a lot of time on my Twitter feed. My own's bad enough. <laughs> uh, your latest book is about flight. Why flight? Don't we all want to fly? Don't we all have dreams of flying? It's a, it's a liberation from the tyranny of two dimensions. And that's how the book begins, uh, myths about flying. 
And it's, but it's technically interesting. It's the, the physics of it is interesting. The physics of how you get off the ground and how you, in effect, defy gravity and there are various ways of doing it. And both human technology and birds and bats and insects and pterosaurs have conquered it. It's also quite an amazing thing from an evolutionary point of view, isn't it? Because sometimes flight, much like the human eye, will be used by creationists as a way of saying, well, I mean, you can't have a little bit of flight no, or a little bit yeah, of sight, so obviously right. God must be behind it. Yeah, somehow. there's this thing about what's the use of half a wing is what, what you're talking about. And, and um, it, of course, it's true that you need a whole wing in order to fly properly. But the question is, is there a gradient of improvement from no wing to, to a full wing? And, of course, there is, and we see it in lots and lots of gliding animals flying squirrels, flying phalangers here, sugar gliders, that kind of thing, where, where just any little increase in the flight surface, any increase in the surface, surface area of the body would enable a tree-dwelling animal, a squirrel, say, to leap just one little bit further. So however far you can leap without an, an additional square inch of flight surface, you can leap just that much further. And therefore, you can reach a branch in, in the forest that you couldn't have reached without that flap. And then you've just got a gradient of improvement until you have a membrane, a so-called patagium, going all the way from the, the wrist to the toe, uh, which is what flying squirrels and flying phalangers have. In the forests of Southeast Asia, we have uh, so-called flying lemurs, um, which incorporate the tail in this parachute, really. And they're quite skilled with their parachutes. Uh, they, they can guide themselves and can leap maybe 100 yards from a tall tree to a, to a lower tree and guide themselves by moving the limbs. It's, n it's not that far from true flight. True, true flight means you stay in the air indefinitely, which is what birds and bats do. Have you seen those YouTube videos of people with wingsuits flying through the Alps at high speed? Are they like um, hang gliders? They're kind of, well, it's an actual suit where your yes. arms, much like a, a sugar yeah. glider or yes. something, have a membrane yeah. between your arms. I love that. And you I, can fly, yeah. and they're flying at 300 kilometers an hour. Yeah, I wish between... I had the courage to do that. I, it, it would be wonderful. <laughs> You've missed out. Yeah. It's a wasted life, Richard, yes, really. Should have, been right. a, should have been a base jumper yes. in another yeah. life. I can still feel people thinking, well, so you have a little bit of a wing and you can sort of glide a little bit and we kind of get that. How do you get an eagle? Well, that's gliding, that's soaring, that's using thermals. And that's another, another trick that many animals use. A, a thermal, you, you have a rising, um, hot air rising. And you see these wonderful birds, eagles and, and vultures, circling round and round and round, just going gently without moving, their, without flapping their wings. They, they have sensitive adjustment to the flight surfaces and they, they're spiraling up, spiraling up. And then they will, when they reach a great height, they can then glide gently downwards to the next thermal. And then, and then climb again. And human glider pilots do the same thing. They spot a thermal, often by, by watching the birds, by seeing a, a group of birds circling around, and they can glide to the next thermal, and then the next. They're called streets, streets of thermals. I imagine you ask for the window seat on a plane? Always, yes. I once had a conversation with a friend who said that they take the, the aisle seat of a plane, and I said, but just imagine when you're looking out the window what yeah. Leonardo da Vinci would have given to be able to behold Excellent the sight point. of being above yeah. the clouds and you're yes. pissing it away and you don't yeah. even care and yeah. you don't even know. And he said, what yeah, really annoys like me is when somebody's sitting in the window seat and just doesn't ever look out of the window. It's <laughs> exactly. a waste. Yes. <laughs> That's right, yes. Uh, yeah. My friend said, I like to be able to go to the toilet quickly. And I was like, well, I yeah. suppose that's a point. Touché. This sort of infectious enthusiasm that you have for 
science. Every time one hears you talk about the eagle or about the sugar glider or about evolution or something, your eyes light up and you're kind of full of wonder about the natural world. And I'm seeing more and more, especially among, among millennials, just to throw you under the bus, the millennials, sorry, I know you're always the butt of our jokes, but nonetheless, a kind of sense that real wonder is to be found in the mystery and majesty of the occult or of mysticism. There's a rise in, I mean, I was talking to, I was interviewing a journalist on my ABC radio show about tarot and the, the, the sort of rise in interest in witchcraft and things like this. And halfway through the interview, she says, I mean, as someone who does tarot myself, and I'm like, you're a journalist who's reporting on this phenomenon. And she herself is a tarot practitioner. And when I asked her about it, she said, well, why does, why does life have to be so boring? Why can't we, Oh, for goodness sake. Why, <laughs> why can't we be open to mystery, she oh, said. God. And I said, but when you talk to someone like Richard Dawkins, and she rolled her eyes in the studio, oh, Richard Dawkins, fuddy-duddy, supposedly. Fuddy-duddy? Isn't, is, isn't there enough mystery in the real world to, with, without going to tarot? Let me tell you about tarot cards. <laughs> I, I, I knew that would fire him up. I, I, was, I was doing a, a television show for Channel 4 in Britain um, called Enemies of Reason, and I, it was, I had to interview a tarot card um, woman, uh, and she was communicating with the dead. That was, her, that was her thing. And so I sat down with her, and she looked at her tarot cards, and then she looked at me, and then she said, oh, well, I can see your father now. He's, um, he's happy where he is, and he's, he misses you, um, and um, he's sorry he didn't properly say goodbye, but he wants you to know that he's happy where he is, and, and he hopes you realize that. And I said, well, that's very interesting. I had dinner with him only last night. <laughs> what, what, what these people do is they, is they rely upon, upon the fact that their victim wants them to succeed. And so they watch your face and they, and they watch... And I just had a poker face. So I, I wasn't giving her the cue she wanted. She must have looked at my grey hair and thought, well, the chances are his father's dead. And um, you know, little did they know he went on till he was 90, 95. He said to me, I'm 96 years old. And I said, no, you're not, you're 95. And he said, is that all? It does touch on something, though. I mean, I'm interested in your sense of what people think is majestic and what people think is mysterious and what people think instills wonder. I mean, my favorite book of yours is Unweaving the Rainbow because it is this ode to the majesty of science. It's, it's about the poetry of knowledge. If you haven't read that book, you must read it. It's, it's a terrific appeal to the, the beauty that can be found in understanding the world and in knowing things instead of relying on superstition and thinking that, that the greatest majesty is to be found in that. And I, I just have a general sense from my talkback callers, from my listeners, from my audience, from social media, that that sense of wonder is slipping through our fingers a little bit, that like sand through our hands. Which would be a huge pity because when you think about it, the, the fact of our own existence is the most astonishing fact. I mean, the fact that we are, the laws of physics, given enough time, has been enough to generate things like us with a brain big enough to appreciate the universe, to appreciate where we come from, to appreciate why we exist, what it's all about. That is an astonishing fact. And, and yet we take it for granted when it's mundane, um, we're fuddy-duddy because we think about that. It is such a shame because it is an amazing fact that we exist at all. It's an amazing fact. I think the beginning of that book, Unweaving the Rainbow, goes something like this. We are going to die and that makes us the lucky ones. Most people are never going to die because they're never going to be born. 
It's such a privilege to be born and to understand why you were ever born in the first place. And although we're going to die, we have the privilege of living and understanding why we live before we die. And that's a huge privilege. That's so exciting. I don't know how anyone could not be interested in science. Do you reflect more on that as you get older? Not more, just the same. Do you think about death? Sorry? Do you think about death? Yes, I, I always have. Really? Yeah. When you were young? Yes. Um, yeah, there's no particular reason to... I'm not like... I think it was actually an Australia, Australian friend of mine who, who said something like, why is it that when you go to church you see lots of old people? And he said, cramming for the final? Well, there is that conception, isn't there, that there are no atheists in foxholes. I mean, even I mentioned your, you know, your, uh, the period in your life when after the God delusion, you became one of these celebrated atheists. And one of your co-conspirators there was Christopher Hitchens, the wonderful articulate firebrand. And after his death, uh, there was this sort of movement to rewrite his final days and to suggest that he'd actually seen the light and that has become shocking. more yeah, sympathetic that, to religion, yes. in his, which I absolutely am certain that Hitch would not have done. So am I. That, that was con contemptible. I won't mention the man's name, but he, but he wrote a book. I forget what it was called, something like The Conversion of Christopher. Right. And um, he, and Christopher was, was very polite and, and, and they spent a long time on a, particular, a car journey together. And this man, whose name I won't mention, um, actually alleged that he, he had a kind of conversion, which is obvious nonsense. And what, I, I made a speech in honor of Christopher Hitchens very, very shortly before his death, actually, and, and made the point that he, Christopher is in a foxhole, I said, and he's an example to all of us to be courageous, to stand up and be courageous and to face the coming of oblivion, which faces all of us, um, but to rejoice in what we have while we have it. Do you, are you afraid of the oblivion? I find the idea of eternity frightening. Um, I mean, when you think of, going, of, of eternity going on and on and on and on and on, and I think the best attitude to that is we want to be, we want to avoid it by being under a general anaesthetic. <laughs> and that's the way we're all going to spend eternity. <laughs> And in terms of the, the wonder of knowledge and uh, the kind of majesty of existence, one of the things that is a hot topic in this part of the world, and I know you're about to go to New Zealand, is the teaching of science and also the teaching of First Nations ways of knowing things as well. Uh, not all of you may know, but in New Zealand, they have a policy which they implemented in 2019 under the Ardern Labor government of introducing Māori ways of no knowing into the curriculum, into the final leaving, like the equivalent of the year 12 leaving exam. And last year in 2022, they did a pilot program where all students in, alongside so-called Western science would be taught Māori science and Māori ways of knowing. And seven very prominent scientists in New Zealand wrote an open letter to one of the big magazines over there, Listener Magazine, uh, objecting to this. And they were accused, of course, of being, you know, old fuddy-duddy white supremacist, uh, narrow Western chauvinists who are uh, dismissive of First Nations people, of the Maori people. It's probably only a matter of time before we have similar things here. We certainly already have plaques in national parks that say, well, the geological explanation for the land you're standing on is this, but the indigenous one is that there's a rainbow serpent and so on. What do you make of that whole kerfuffle? Well, first, I would say that the phrase Western science is a terrible phrase. Um, it's an insult to Japanese, Indian, Chinese scientists. I think the idea that um, 
indigenous people somehow need special treatment is patronizing and condescending to them. I think that science is science, it's not Western, it's human. Science belongs to everybody. Science is the way we find out what is true about the universe. Methods have been honed and developed over four or five centuries, and they work. Um, science can land a spacecraft on a comet. Science can go to Pluto. Uh, science can land men on the moon. Science can cure smallpox, can, can immunize against, against smallpox, can do all these kinds of things. That is science. It belongs to humanity as a whole. The idea that scientific truths are somehow local to a particular region is a travesty and nonsense. And I'm deeply distressed that not just in New Zealand, but all over the world, there's a tendency to, I think, a, a, a originating from sort of certain philosophical trends in France, that, that knowledge, scientific knowledge, is just something that white Western males do, as though, as though it was restricted to a certain kind of person, and that equally valid would be an, a different kind of so-called way of knowing. Utter nonsense. We, it's, of course, important to learn about indigenous ways of knowing in study of culture, in the study of history, but not in science. Science is something that is bigger than that. If there were valuable scientific insights coming from the Maori people, and there may be, then they should be taught all over the world, not specifically in New Zealand. Isn't it? it can't be the case that there is scientific truths that only matter in New Zealand and nowhere else. It's utter nonsense. I, I respect those New Zealand scientists who have stood out against this trend and who have actually suffered for it. Yes, believing that it's Western science sort of suggests that when we send a, a, a spacecraft to Jupiter and it orbits in precisely the right way, that somehow Jupiter knows that it was a straight white man <laughs> yeah. who did the equations. <laughs> Jupiter can't know such yeah. a thing, yeah. being a gigantic, gassy giant. How then should we teach such things? Because presumably there needs to be a space that we carve out for the different ways that different cultures have arrived at different traditions, some of which will have a sprinkle of science in them, some of which will have a sprinkle of superstition, not all of which will be quite as cut and dried as the traditional scientific method, but that nonetheless we may not wish to lose to the sands of time. Yes. I mean, imagine that somebody were to insist that we should teach tarot card reading. In it's coming. You know, the, the, um, the woman I interviewed. It, of course, these things should be taught somewhere else. They should be taught in, in cultural studies. They should be taught in anthropology and history. There are plenty of places where it's important that such subjects should be taught. And there is a reason to teaching specifically in New Zealand, the folklore and the religion, the, the, um, the history of indigenous people, but not in science. And then how do we teach science? Because it wasn't until I was in my mid to late teens and I discovered your books and Carl Sagan's books and Richard Feynman's lectures that I realized that I loved science. My experience in the education system in Australia of science was rote learning of the periodic table of the elements, Bunsen burners, petri dishes, and nowhere anyone to say what you just said earlier about how incredibly lucky we are to be alive and what specks we are in the cosmos and how unimaginably extraordinary evolution by natural selection is. I had to get that through books. Yes, I, it is a pity. Um, I think perhaps... Education in Britain, anyway, sort of graduated from teaching Latin, where where a dead language, and, and it was taught. Everybody had to had to learn Latin, and you had to learn 
irregular verbs and things like that. It's, it's a bit, if you come from that sort of tradition, then you might teach science in that sort of way. There's another, actually potentially more laudable way of approaching science, which is to teach it as a practical subject and to say it's useful and the science of the kitchen, the science of cookery. The, the, um, and um, I, I call this the, the non-stick frying pan school of <laughs> teaching science. And, and it comes from the justification for space exploration that one of the spin-offs from um, building space rockets was the non-stick frying pan because they, used, they needed some sort of coating to these spacecrafts as opposed to the Carl Sagan way of teaching it, which is, which is the, the, the wonder of it, which is not so practical, more poetic, actually. And, and um, I think it is important to do practical science because we do need practical scientists. But for many people, it's a bit like music. You don't necessarily have to learn to play an instrument in order to, be, uh, to appreciate music at a fairly advanced level. You can actually become a, a connoisseur of music um, without being able to play the violin or do five-finger exercises on the piano. In the same way, you can appreciate science just like you can appreciate music uh, without actually ever knowing which end of a Bunsen burner is which. <laughs> yeah, it can be hazardous if you don't know which end of a Bunsen burner is which, though. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good analogy. I mean, it's almost like you could be a food critic without knowing how to chop an onion without crying. I'm sure plenty of food critics are exactly... <laughs> they don't know yes. the, which end of a knife is yes. sharp. Yeah. Um, yes, so do we need like a philosophy of science class, a poetry of science class? I like the phrase poetry of science very much, yes. And, yeah. and, and I think, I mean, Carl Sagan exemplifies that Definitely. very well. Yeah. Let's look at his chapter headings, they're wonderful. Well, A Demon Haunted World is another yeah, yeah. amazing book. That's a wonderful book. Demon yeah. Haunted World. Yes. Go and get that and yeah. Unweaving the Rainbow. Yeah. We'll come back next week. We'll have a little book session. We'll have a book club. We'll talk about it. Amid all of this kind of trying to figure out knowledge and how we understand the world, we're also currently engaged in the biggest psychological experiment that has ever been conducted in the form of social media and the fracturing of where we get our information from and I was pleased that you have been able to insulate yourself from the cohort of, uh, of our peers who thinks that the war in Ukraine is Western folly and that Putin has a point. But trust me, they're there. There are a lot of people who think that COVID was a hoax or a man-made event. There are the QAnon people in the States. There are people who think that Donald Trump actually won the 2020 election. There are people who think that climate chaos is something made up by the United Nations and scientists to try to enslave us all. And it's becoming harder and harder as a broadcaster on a public broadcaster, which has the imprimatur of mainstream press to cut through that cacophony. And I wonder if you have thoughts about our fate. Can you reassure me or are we all doomed? No, I mean, I'm actually intrigued by this phenomenon. I'm intrigued by the way uh, misinformation seems to be so popular that, I mean, we always used to treat flat earthism as a sort of joke, but quite a large number of people who believe in, a, in the earth, believe in the earth <laughs> is flat. I think part of the explanation is they find each other. And because the, the um, internet, social media enables people to, to form a kind of village of, of, of um, co-conspirators um, who, who recognize each other. And although they're in different parts of the world, they can talk to each other and reinforce each other and gain prestige from the praise of each other. But, and they get the impression that because they are talking to this narrow circle of people who believe in the flat earth, or whatever it is, or believe that Donald Trump won the 2020 election, 
they get reinforced and they get the feeling that this is a real movement. This is, this is real, you know, re really a lot of um, people believe this. There has been a, a suggestion that being a very social species, this is kind of Darwinian explanation, um, we thrive in a Darwinian sense, in a survival value sense, from being in agreement with our fellow human beings. And normally, that in, in the state of nature, that would have meant the, the tribe in which we lived, um, the, the local population in, in which we live. Now in the internet, the tribe in which we live can be dispersed all over the world. Mm. So there's the flat earth tribe who are not living in the same village, but they feel as though they are. They're using the same communication methods that they would have used in the primitive village, although it's actually distributed ar around the world. But they get the feeling of, of reinforcement. Yes. And so that may be part of it. Uh, if, you, if you only live inside your bubble of uh, people who believe the same things as you, you actually think that bubble is much more important than it is. You actually think there really is a significant number of people who believe in the flat earth or that Trump won the 2020 election. Yes. And I mean, there is another ingredient that's going into this cauldron of misinformation, which is that the algorithms that dictate what we see at the top of our feed on social media are intentionally tweaked to favor content that is likely to get us to engage, which means it, it's, it's an extremification machine in the sense that if we are likely to click on yes. it or share it yes. or comment on yes. it, then the algorithm is going to put it, push it to the top of our feed, which yes. is either going to reinforce it creates the same illusion. Yeah, yeah exactly. or, or it's yeah. going to you know, um, caricature our opponents in some yes. way. And I, I don't know how we get out of that, <laughs> get out of that hole. Um, why is the Earth flat? How do we know? Do you want to just put, uh, put an end to that right here, just in case we have any flat earthers in the so why, why is it flat or, or why is it how, how do we know that the, sorry, how do we know that the Earth is not flat? Well, if the Earth is flat, what's Australia doing? We're dangling off the bottom, mate. Uh, yes. <laughs> what's something that we sort of take for granted now that you think that, I suppose, when I'm your age, everybody will, have, will completely understand that we were just entirely mistaken about? I don't know. I suppose if I could answer that, I would get a Nobel Prize. <laughs> you deserve a Nobel Prize anyway. Someone asked me that the other day, and it was interesting. It took me a long time to think about it. And then I thought, maybe the fact that we don't seem to pay any heed to whether or not sentient animals suffer. Yes, that's an obvious one. And, and it, it came up actually in my similar event to this in Melbourne, where my interviewer was Peter Singer, who's the well-known philosopher. Singer has a dog in that fight. Uh, absolutely. Um, and he wrote the book Animal Liberation, which is a very fine book. He's working on a new edition of it at the moment. And I think he's the most moral man in the world, actually. And I, I said so in, in Melbourne. I think it's true that um, we are speciesist. You, it's not, he didn't invent the word, but he, it's one of his favorite words, in that we, um, we treat the human species as though it was absolutely unique and that the human species is, deserves a kind of moral concern which no other species does. And we can, that's only possible because the intermediates to other animals have all gone extinct. If, 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 you, if we suddenly discovered in the African forest a, a relict population of Homo erectus or Homo habilis or Australopithecus, um, so that we could actually see the intermediates between us and chimpanzees, or if somebody produced a hybrid between a human and a chimpanzee, that would completely uh, revolutionize our attitude to humanity. We could no longer regard humans as being morally completely on their own. So something like um, the abortion debate, where because a fetus is human, it is regarded as infinitely more valuable 
than, than an adult pig, say, say, just by virtue of being human. And if the intermediates between us and pigs, of course, there was a continuum between us going, we have a common ancestor with pigs, which, which in all the intermediates, if all the intermediates still survived and were capable of interbreeding all the way along the way, I actually contributed an essay to a book which Peter Singer edited called The Great Ape Project. And I fantasized about a sort of thought experiment of, of standing, holding your mother's hand, and then she holds her mother's hand, who holds her mother's hand, who holds her mother's hand. And you go all the way back to the common ancestor with chimpanzees. There must have been a single individual who was the common ancestor of chimpanzees and us. And so she, hold, with her other hand, holds her daughter, who holds her daughter, who holds her daughter's hand, who holds her daughter's hand, all the way down to modern chimpanzees. So we have a chain of handholders which, which, which link modern humans to modern chimpanzees. And as it happens, all the intermediates, of course, are dead. So we don't, no we don't notice, we don't think about it as being a continuum, but it is a continuum. And if the intermediates were alive, if they, if they were discovered in Africa, we would have to really, really rethink all sorts of attitudes, all sorts of moral att attitudes towards other beings. But quite apart from that, you use the word sentient, and there's no particular reason why the mere fact of being related to chimpanzees should give them a special privilege. What if, what if dogs, say, are, are... Well, but we're related to them as well. well of course we are, but a, 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 bit, a bit further back. The common ancestor with dogs would, would, have, would have lived many tens of millions of years ago. And so what would the common ancestor between humans and pigs be? Uh, it, it's something like a shrew. Like a shrew. Yes. Like a little furry yes. mammal thing. Yes, yes. Um, a sort of a rodent. Well, not a rodent, but small like a rodent. I don't yes. really know what a shrew yeah. is, as yeah. you can tell. But well, they're not they're not rodents, but they but they kind of look like looks a bit like a rat. Yeah. Yes. So you do the thought experiment of the holding hands that you yes. just said, and you hold holding, and you go past yeah. the common ancestor to the chimp, and you go all the way back, 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 back. Yes. And at yes. some point, you've got a little wee rodent-like shrew thing yes. holding its little paw up. Yeah, that's right. And hanging on to another, yes. and then you double back the other V, and yes. you go and, up. And paws become up, trotters. And, and, and you get to a pig. Yes. So a pig is my cousin. Yeah. To quote the man outside with his loudspeaker, a potato is your cousin. <laughs> we literally believe things as crazy as the Christian protester out there thinks we do. We, like, actually, do you think a potato is your cousin? Yes, and Richard's yes. like, yes, I do. So you go down, 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 you end up shaking the hand of your little shrew. Then... Does that make you question whether or not setting aside the Peter Singer argument, well, one objection to veganism, for example, might be it's the natural order of things. If you're a hunter and you need to survive, then you're out in the wilderness, you know, should you be allowed to kill a deer or something? Let's put aside those questions and just look at the actual way that most and of us... a colleague of mine said, I didn't get to the top of the food chain for nothing. That mindset, right. I didn't, get, I didn't get to the top of the food chain for nothing. Therefore, even though I could absolutely live a healthy life without eating meat, I do eat animal flesh because I like the taste. So I'm, I'm torturing, you know, the lives of animals are pretty lousy in most farms unless I'm buying organic or free range, and even then I don't know. But let's suppose I'm not. I'm just going to the supermarket. I'm buying the cheapest meat that I can. So my cousin in that hand-holding V is leading a terrible life and then being slaughtered in horrible conditions because I prefer the taste of its flesh to tofu. Will that not be looked back on as being horrendous? I think there's a, there's a historical reason of thinking, possibly yes, um, because 
just as we look back on, on slavery with horror now. But by the way, of course, your cousin is a lion as well. And, and it eat me. And they, and they couldn't survive without it, yes. That's true, yes, yes indeed. And I'm not sure, I mean, life in a farm animal may be unpleasant, but it's probably unpleasant in the wild as well. I mean, a, a, a wild pig would probably be constantly looking over its shoulder, fearful of predators. Domestic pigs don't have that fear. They lead a pretty cushy life until the end. I suppose well, we'd have to it'd ask. It'd be nice one. to think. Actually, they probably don't now because they wouldn't. I suppose we'd have to ask. Feel, feel it probably kept. I think they generally they generally don't yeah. live a no. I think that's right. Life. I, um, I think there are reasons to, and I, I, I said this to Peter Singer. I think there are reasons to think that a, a Darwinian account of pain would actually give you a rather paradoxical result, a paradoxical answer. We're apt to think that because we have big brains and we have um, conscious, um, highly developed consciousness, therefore we're capable of feeling more pain than other animals. And I think I can give a Darwinian argument why that's probably not the case. Pain is all about warning the animal not to repeat actions which lead to injury. So anything that leads to injury, like cutting yourself or burning yourself or, or breaking a limb, that not only makes you more likely to die, it's threatening to your survival, it is highly painful. And pain is the nervous system's warning, don't repeat what you just did because it's dangerous. It's likely to make you die next time it happens. So that's what pain is all about. Now, that raises the question, why does it have to be so damn painful? Why couldn't the brain have something like a little red flag that pops up? It simply says, a little warning says, don't do that again, because that theoretically ought to work. But there evidently is a perfectly good reason why it is ex extremely painful, it's difficult to resist. Now, you can make a very good argument that says that an intelligent animal would actually need less pain in order to warn it against doing the in, potentially injuring thing again. So a relatively unintelligent animal with a less well-developed brain would need actually more pain in order to have the same effect on its future behavior. And so the fact that we are very brainy animals should not be used as a justification for saying we are capable of feeling more pain. It might be used as a justification of saying we're capable of feeling fear more or of being bereaved more um, but not in the, in the case of pain, I think. And so I think this is an argument actually against the idea that humans are deserving of special treatment where pain is concerned. So because a cow is too stupid to understand what it should and shouldn't it, do, it, it pain may pain. loom larger in its exactly. conscious experience. Exactly, yes. Yeah, interesting. At least it's, a, it's an argument for giving them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. So why don't we? Why haven't we reached that tipping point? Well, maybe give it another century. The other thing that we might need to give another century is weapons of mass destruction, which it's sort of a bit uncool to worry about at the moment because we don't feel like there's a cold war on. And yet, when I was leafing back through The Selfish Gene, I was thinking of the world in which you wrote that book in the mid-70s when there was a very real and present existential possibility of the planet annihilating itself through a nuclear exchange between the Soviet Union and the West. I didn't live through that period, so I don't know what that's like, but... Well, that is what it felt like. And, and um, in, in, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, for example, it really did feel like that, and I think it was like that. And, there were, and other things as well, the Berlin, there were a couple of Berlin crises as well, um, which were very, very similar. 
I, I happen to be staying with a, a college friend of mine in Devon um, as one of those Berlin crises. And the, my friend's father was a general in charge of uh, the southwest region of Britain um, in the event of war. So he knew, he knew what, was, what he was talking about. And he came down to breakfast looking very jovial. and said, well, you boys, I think there's going to be a war. And, and he, <laughs> said, he said, I don't, I don't want to alarm you boys, but I think there's going to be a war. And, and um, he seemed very cheerful about it, being, I suppose, being a general. Um, but it, it did feel like that. Quite sure why it doesn't feel like that now. I mean, the, well, we don't have the adversary. We don't have the same ideological adversary, but... Well, don't we? I mean, what about Putin? Good point. I mean, I suppose there, there isn't the same trenchant hostility. There's, it seems like a more conniving uh, kind of uh, villainy that he's, that, that he's expressing rather than the kind of, I don't know, Stalinist bombast. Yeah. But I just wonder, I mean, thinking ahead into the future, since you said, you know, in 100 years' time, we might think differently about animals. Are we going to make it 100 years if we don't get our hands around nukes? I won't be around to see, but um, <laughs> um, I, 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 yeah, I mean, we, we do have various things to worry about. How do you feel about the climate situation? Well, I think we've got to worry about that too. And, and um, I, my attitude to that is, is to try to be optimistic and to say science has usually found a, a way to solve such problems and science probably could solve these problems, but it isn't enough for science to know what to do. It, they have to persuade humanity to adopt the solutions, and that means persuading, having the political will to put into practice what science prescribes. That is a more difficult problem than actually thinking what the solution is. And while we're going through this gloomy portion of the conversation, don't worry, it'll get lighter in a moment, but just talking about existential threats, let's just touch on pandemics. Since I last saw you, we've had a global pandemic. I can't say that the world passed with flying colours in our response to COVID necessarily. What lesson do you take from the experience of the pandemic? Well, I'm encouraged at the speed with which several different groups of scientists produced vaccines. Um, that this was unprecedented. And to produce vaccines in, in, a, in a matter of months just is a huge achievement. And what's even better about that is that uh, some of these vaccines use the principle, the mRNA vaccine, principle, which potentially lends itself to quick discovery of new vaccines when the next virus comes along. So um, because of the way mRNA vaccines work, when, if, if, well, I say, let's say when, that the next virus arises, um, it will be instantly sequenced, very, very quickly sequenced. The, the DNA of the of RNA of the, of the virus will, will be sequenced. And then the it will be a, a matter of rather a short time to devise a vaccine once you've got the sequence, which will, which will be quick. So that's a spin-off from the COVID pandemic, that, that we not only have vaccines against COVID, but we have a method for producing new vaccines in a hurry when the next one comes along. I mean, yeah, I think the mRNA vaccine, even for COVID, was basically done in a week or two, and then all of the remaining months were testing and testing, safety and yes, all that stuff. Yeah. But there is an adage, Richard, that vaccines don't save lives. Vaccinations save lives. You need to get it into people's arms. And there is also enormous resistance to that. Well, even that's the mention an, of the word mRNA. That's an amazing phenomenon, is the... Is the, is the um, worldwide misinformation campaign against against vaccines. There was a moment last February when I was on Joe Rogan's show um, and he was talking about how, you know, he's a big podcaster in America yeah. and he was talking about how the mRNA vaccines cause heart 
inflammation, myocarditis and pericarditis, which is a side effect, of, uh, you know, an occasional side effect, especially among young males. I was making the point that COVID itself is worse in terms of inflammation, inflammation of the heart and all kinds of other things than the vaccines. He didn't think that it was. And so it was fact checked in real time. And it turned out that I was right and he was wrong. But the whole internet blew up for about five seconds. I don't know if anyone remembers that moment. And all of a sudden, I have subsequently spent the past 12 months being the target of enormous hate and hate and threats from um, vaccine deniers, as if I'm an apologist for big pharma and trying to uh, hide um, uh, side effects. And I do wonder whether the elite institutions of universities and the media are equipped enough to do a good enough job of, I guess, giving credence to some of the fears by talking about them openly and honestly. I mean, I do feel that at my institution, there was sometimes there has sometimes been a reluctance to even talk, for example, about myocarditis as a consequence of vaccines because you're so afraid of scaring people. But then your the lack of conversation about it is more fuel on the fire of the conspiracists who say, look, yeah. mainstream media isn't even talking about this. So do elite institutions bear any of the blame for the lack of trust? Yes, probably. Um, th th I think that is, a, that is a real problem. Um, one of the things is that because it happened in such a hurry, it was necessary to, for, for these sort of elite pundits to put out messages which maybe were designed to be reassuring. And because it was in such a hurry, they, they couldn't be tested adequately in the way that they would normally have been. So normally it would, would take maybe 10 years of, of testing to, mm. to, to come up with really, really confident um, expectations for possible side effects. Almost any medication will have side effects. And there may be a, f a few casualties which are very tragic. And, but when you compare it to the, tra to, the, to the casualties that come from the disease itself, that, that's the point, you get dwarf, dwarf bite. When the, um, I think it was the whooping cough uh, vaccination came out, and, I, and there was a sort of campaign to say maybe they're not safe and maybe, maybe the vaccination causes problems. And I asked my doctor whether there's any, any worry about this, vaccinating my child about, I think, I think it was whooping cough. It might have been, maybe it was MMR, um, measles, mumps, mumps. Mumps, measles, mumps, rubella. And he got up and took down a volume and he, and he said, there may be a slight risk from the vaccination but the risk from the disease itself is 2,000 times greater. So it's a, it's a matter of statistics. On the other hand, if you did vaccinate your child and the child did have one of these extremely rare side effects, you would blame yourself um, in a way that you might not blame yourself if you didn't vaccinate the child and the child got, got the disease. Mm. So, so somehow the positive act of sticking a needle into the child's arm. And of course, there are cases when the child would have got ill anyway, and you stick the needle in the arm and it, and it gets ill. And people are so ready to infer causation when it's just an accidental coincidence. And of course, if you are one of those tragic cases who suffer a side effect, then coming back to what you were saying earlier about social media and the self-selecting tribe of flat earthers, yes, yeah, you right. then amplify that situation on and social media. And there's a really, and a other really people. huge tribe, of, a virtual tribe of anti-vaxxers. There was a um, television program on Channel 4 in Britain um, lionizing the man who produced that false report about, about MMR vaccine. I'm not going to mention his name. Um, false report about MMR vaccine causing autism. And they made him out to be some kind of a hero. And, and he's quite a good-looking man, and, and that this probably helped. And um, there was one woman who, who was an ardent um, foe to, to the 
to the vaccination. And the interviewer said, on the whole, the interview was, a, was a, the, the Channel 4 program was a whitewash of, of this dreadful man. And the, but the interviewer said to this woman, but surely you're not a doctor. Um, do you have the authority to say that? And she said, I may not be a doctor, but I am a mother. And that was sufficient, sufficient to regard her as, a, as an authority. <laughs> She's now an expert on everything. She's now an expert, yes. On all pathology. Yeah. Um, yeah, in terms of you know, vaccine side effects, I think it was Sam Harris who said that if the cure for COVID was peanut butter, then of course you would have tons of people dying from peanut point. butter. Yes, yes, Lots yes. Lots of people are allergic yeah. to peanut butter. So, yes. Uh, yeah. yeah that really does kill you too. If you it's, a, it's all a numbers game. In, um, in about five minutes, we'll start taking questions uh, for, for Richard. There are microphones, I believe, at both uh, ends over here. So feel free to start noodling on things. And if you do want to get up, you can. I will be sort of trying to keep it roughly gender and age equal, so don't feel bad if I pass over you. Um, but um, yes, hop up, if, hop up if you wish. Richard, what, what excites you about the future? What do you, what do you wish you could live long enough to see? Oh, well, I think the origin of life is still a big mystery, and I would like to see that solved. It may never be definitively solved because it happened a very long time ago, and it may be that the best we can ever hope for is a theory, a model, which is so good, so elegant, that one somehow feels it's got to be true, but it may not be ever, there may not ever be direct evidence for it, but I would like to see that. Um, I'd like to understand subjective consciousness. I think that's a big one. And it's not even clear to me whether that would be solved by biologists or computer scientists or even philosophers. What does that mean? Explain the problem. The extraordinary fact that we, eat, we all of us have conscious awareness that, that the color red is, is something that we actually makes an impact and we see this redness. This, I, mean, this is, I don't think anybody thinks that computers have that kind of awareness or, or feeling emotions. That, Will they? Could they? Well, I'm sure that potentially they must be capable of it because, after all, I'm a materialist. I believe that emotions and all these other things are consciousness is a product of brain stuff and it's just there's nothing non-physical about it and therefore i have to be committed to the view that it must be replicate replicable in in a computer but um it, it's very hard to know how you would ever know that that was true the the turing test of of when you're sitting in a room with a with a com communicating with a computer or a human you're having a conversation with with, with, with it, and you can't tell whether it's a human you're communicating with or a computer, then that's, that's the test. That, that's the demonstration that it is conscious. I don't think that's right. I mean, I think, I think you could be fooled. Yes, although I'm not sure that that's quite what Turing meant by the Turing test. I don't think he was saying that it means that the computer is conscious if it's indistinguishable from a human. I think he's just saying that you, have, you stand in relation to it as if it were, and functionally we have to sort of Functionally, the question almost becomes moot because you run into the same philosophical conundrum of how do you know that I'm conscious? Well, that's right. And, and um, I, I don't know that you're conscious, of course. Um, I am uh, a robot. Yes, that's right. Um, my friend David McFarlane used to say, I'm not conscious when you, when you got to that point of the <laughs> argument. Um, yes, uh, I mean, I, 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 um, I've, I, I've often, you, well, you know what solipsism is. Mm. Um, sol solipsism, the belief that only I am conscious and all the, all the rest of you are just part of a kind of dream in my, in my head. 
And, and I'm rather fond of the story that Bertrand Russell used to tell, that he got a letter from a woman who said, Dear Lord Russell, I'm so pleased to hear that you're a solipsist. There are so few of us around these days. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Richard Dawkins. Come on up to the front if you have a question for Richard. We'll do about half an hour of anything that you want to talk about, and we'll take it anywhere, and we will interject uh, it, as, as, we, as we wish. Uh, there's a, there is a mic over there. There's a mic over there. Uh, just a reminder, uh, the question should usually end with a question mark and to have an opportunity for Richard to say something. Otherwise, it is a speech. I'm sure you have a very interesting speech planned, but this is probably not the forum for it. Should we start uh, over here? G'day. G'day. Are you concerned with all the social tribalism that you've talked about tonight that's going on? Are you concerned that people will be turning more to religion because of that fracture rather than reason? Well, I would be concerned if I thought they were or would. It's not clear to me why they should. It, 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 is it clear to you why they should? I, I, I can't really see why that would follow. Well, I guess they just see, they look at people. I, I, the phenomenon that I've seen recently is the Hogwarts fallout, uh, where a lot of people are screaming, if you play the Hog Hogwarts game, you're transphobic because it's yes. J.K. Rowling has gone in it. And so they're screaming, if you play it, you're transphobic. And then so 257 million people in the world are now transphobic because it's one of the biggest selling games. So they're like, yeah, I'm not that. Um, okay. Um, so you're saying it, this is, a, it's not religion in the conventional sense, but there is, an, there is a, a, a new kind of religion which regards J.K. Rowling as a heretic. That you, you mean? <laughs> yeah. There's that, and also there's a, spec a part where people are like, well, these people are accusing me of something that I'm not, whereas yeah. religion is more accepting of me. Yeah. So well, I'll go to that. They, I mean, they, they certainly are, certainly like medieval religion in, in, in the zealous hunting out of heretics and, and ruthless punishing of heretics like, like J.K. Rowling. Go for it. Uh, hi. Um, a number of years ago, you did an appearance on Q&A with Australia's most famous cardinal, George Pell. His death seemed to have sparked a bit of a resurgent public debate in how much respect we should show religious authority and religion in general. I was wanting to know, over your lifetime, how much progress do you think we've made on that front? And what would you say to us younger people who sometimes feel a bit hopeless in the way it's going and wish that all this nonsense would just go away once and for all? The nonsense being religion, you mean? Yes. Yes. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that we should hold Cardinal Pell against religion. I mean, uh, it, for me, religion stands or falls on whether it's true, not whether its practitioners are immoral or not. So although I didn't really warm to Cardinal Pell when I met him, I must confess, I wouldn't hold that against the, the Catholic Church. I'd hold lots of other things against the Catholic Church, but not necessarily that. But I think, I, yeah. sorry to interject, interject yes. Richard, but I think in the context of Australia, he probably represents the real world sins of the church in the sense of an association with cover-ups of, of barbaric crimes against children. There's and, no doubt at all that, that, that those cover-ups, um, the, the crimes against children themselves, of course, and the cover-ups of them have enormously damaged the Catholic church. And, and one sees this uh, all, all over the world and... Ireland, I think in particular, um, the, the church is losing a lot of authority because of that. And once again, I, I think that in, in a way that's deplorable, though it is that's the wrong reason to, for losing confidence in the church. Well, you should lose confidence in the church because they talk nonsense. 
and and but and that's a, that's another matter. So I I I mean I am encouraged by the the figures that show um, adherence to particular religions going down all over the Western world, including even America, which is lagging behind um, in in this respect. But even in America, the number of people who no longer subscribe to a religion is um, something like 25%, whereas in, in Australia, I imagine it's much higher. In Britain, it certainly is much higher. Um, so things are moving in the right direction. But going back to the first question over, the, over this side, it could be that what's replacing it is another kind of religion, which, which may be just as bad. Does that, I mean, this is sometimes the case that religious conservatives make, which is don't think that when you get rid of religion, you're going to end up with a secular no, paradise. That's right. You're going to end yeah. up with tribal quarrelling of the worst sort, much tribal worse. You'll, and, you'll and be, tribal beliefs of the worst, of the worst sort. Right, and you'll be, you'll, be, you'll be wishing that you still have the Catholic Church because yeah. you'll have a whole bunch of crazy wokesters going nuts. Yes, yeah. Does that bother you? Yes, I think. <laughs> yeah. Go for it. I have an important question to ask, but first I'd like to personally thank you, Professor Dawkins, for everything you've done for me personally. My question will give context to that uh, appreciation. Up until about four years ago, I, I was raised in the Mormon or LDS church, um, at which point um, a friend who had left the church opened my eyes to some truths about the church that were uh, kept away from me. Um, in the last four years, have been very difficult, specifically to do with my family and friends that are still involved in the religion. What um, advice would you give to someone that has often sleepless, not sleepless nights trying to decide whether they push to help them, uh, from my perspective, help them out of that bubble or let things be and try and keep the relationships alive? It's one of the great tragedies, I think, of, of um, departing from a religion. Is in, the, in the case of something like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness, you are apt to be disowned by your family um, if, you, if you announce that you have forsaken the religion if it's if it's islam you've forsaken you're up to have your head cut off so it's a big it's a really big problem it's hard for some of us to understand the power that it has because after all it is just a, a philosophical disagreement you should be able to have a philosophical disagreement with your family with your parents say or your spouse without it causing a rift without it causing them to cease to be on speaking terms with you, disowning you, banishing you from the home, refusing to acknowledge your existence, that kind of thing. It's an, a demonstration of the power, the really sinister power, the hideous power that religion has over the human spirit, that it does have this, this, this power to alienate people from their families just simply from um, a disagreement. You can disagree about the football team you support or anything like that, or maybe even the politics, but... But with religion, it's You're to... clearly not Australian, Richard. You can't okay. disagree about football teams here <laughs> okay. without um, disowning each other. But, but it is, it is a, I, I think it's a demonstration of, of, of the evil that religion can cause, that it actually does disrupt families and, and cause great personal tragedy. I'm not sure what you ask me, what advice to give. I don't know. I mean, I think, um, to me, the, the right solution would be patient argument. But I'm afraid experience shows that doesn't always work. Have Dan Barker, who, who, who was a preacher, he described himself as the kind of preacher you don't want to sit next to on a bus. He would ask you whether you were saved. And, and um, he became an atheist. And one by one, his family did too. And, and, and so he, he seems to have had a gift of persuasion. Have you tried the God delusion? 
I just finished the audiobook uh, about mm. two weeks ago. I mean, that, that would, that, and Sam Harris has a great little book called Letter to a Christian Nation. Which I've, listened, is also I've listened to his audiobook about Yeah, an excellent companion to that. I mean, uh, what can you do? I mean, give people books. To open them. I mean, in the case of, of Mormonism, the beliefs are so preposterous. It, it's amazing anybody <laughs> can believe them. Um, I, the, I did for 30 <laughs> years, I know. I, I feel like a fool now, but when you're involved, it's, I know. it's blinding. You, it's, you, you know that, that lovely line in Douglas Adams, one of Douglas Adams' book, books, about the electric monk, which was a, a robot, a robotic monk that you buy in order to do your believing for you. And <laughs> the advanced version of the, of the monk was described as capable of believing things they wouldn't believe in Salt Lake City. Thank you. Yes, next question. Um, what do you think next is coming in human evolution? So I didn't quite hear that, sorry. What do you think is coming next in human evolution? Did you hear that? Yes, what's coming next in human evolution? Oh, right. Well, whatever it is, it's not going to come in our lifetime. It, 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 the process we're talking about is, will take tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years if we're talking about really real biological evolution as opposed to cultural evolution. You might look back at the, the past three million years and ask what has been the trend that we've seen in the past three million years and it is largely an increase in brain size. So three million years ago, our ancestor would have been a member of the genus Australopithecus and would have been pretty much like a chimpanzee, but, but walking on its hind legs. So it would have had a, a brain only slightly larger than a chimpanzee. And what's happened in the meantime is that we've uh, we stayed on hind legs, obviously, and our brain has swelled enormously, blown up like a balloon. So you might say, well, will that trend continue? And it, it, it might, but in order for that to happen, it's necessary that the brainiest individuals among us are the ones who have the most children. So we, 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 might, we might set that on one side. Um, it's hard to know what else to, to, to expect. I mean, natural selection, the survival of the fittest, has rather gone into a strange phase, at least in our society, because it's rather difficult to die young nowadays. So. If you reach reproductive age, um, then, you, sorry, most of us do reach re reproductive age. It's rather difficult to, to, to die young. So there isn't much selection in favor of survival skills. Uh, it no longer is necessary to be athletic, to have good sense organs, to have the, the, the prerequisites for surviving. Um, rather, we have to ask the question, who is doing the reproducing and who is not doing the reproducing? And the if, if you could find a genetic difference, if, we, if you could say, put everybody who has more than four children in, on, on one group of people and everybody who has no children on the other side, and then ask the question, is there any genetic difference between this lot and that lot? And if that's consistent over many generations, then you have selection, you have an, an evolutionary pressure. Um, it doesn't seem likely, because if you ask the question, why do some people have more children than others? It's unlikely to be a genetic reason. It's more likely to be something like a cultural reason, a religious reason. And in any case, whatever it is, even if, if it were genetic, it's unlikely to be sustained over a large enough number of generations to cause an evolutionary change. So it's very doubtful whether we could make a prediction about what's next for humans. Interesting, though, it, it is. If Elon Musk's dream of putting a human colony on Mars were ever realized, then you might then get separation into new species given enough time um, because there would be very little, if any, gene flow between the two, between the two planets. And that, that, that might be interesting. But it would take 
longer than any of us will have by long chalk. Richard, when, when you say that there might be religious and cultural reasons why some people would have lots of children or not lots of children, could there be, are there likely to be biological correlates to, for example, personality traits like ambition or openness or secularism versus uh, tribalism and closed-mindedness? Well, if, if the, yes, if, if those cultural traits were, um, were, were reflected in numbers of children, and th then that would be the case. But it's got to be genetic, remember, in order to have an evolutionary consequence. Is it likely to be? I don't think so. Okay. Um, I mean, as I said, if you did that experiment of dividing people up into those with lots of children and those with none, and then look for genetic differences, you might find some. Well, I, mean, I rather, I rather the... doubt whether the differences would be sustained over, over lots, over I, many I'm generations. just sort of thinking, take the example of the person from, uh, who was the Mormon who just yes. asked that question. I mean, is it possible that people who leave the faith and subsequently have fewer children have a genetic reason for being being more open-minded and more rebellious. That would not be totally surprising, um, but I doubt if that would have a, a major impact because it, it probably doesn't affect large numbers of people. Right, I see. Yeah. Go for it. Who is your favourite philosopher and why? Well, I'm not very big on philosophers. <laughs> I am, I'm fond of my friend Dan Dennett, um, who is a philosopher who has taken the trouble to learn a lot of science. And so um, he uh, does not just do, sit in an armchair and, and, and think deep thoughts. He actually informs his thoughts by scientific knowledge. And so I think I would probably say Dan Dennis is my favorite philosopher. But the most moral philosopher, as I already said, is Peter Singer. Thank you very much. Yeah, next question. Hello, hello everyone. I'd like to say first, highly recommend getting the vaccine. My 5G's never been better. <laughs> Just kidding. But on that topic, I recently watched the um, Joe Rogan podcast with Brett Weinstein, and they did mention that brief exchange you had, I was, feel so nervous, about a year ago. And um, as a follower of Richard Dawkins, Joe Rogan, and perhaps even your radio show, I'd like to see a follow-up on that as a consumer of media. I would find that very interesting. So I appreciate that. But Richard, very much appreciate watching YouTube and your books. I'd like to ask about a biogenesis because... Oftentimes in evolution, well, he talks about evolution, they get conflated between abiogenesis and evolution. And I wonder, I want to know what you think about the RNA world hypothesis and if there's any promise in that. Or even if it's possible to know definitively the origin of life in abiogenesis, uh, abiogenesis sense. Yes, um, abiogenesis is the process of going from non-biology to biology. So in other words, the origin of life. And the question that asks about the RNA world hypothesis. This is very appealing. The origin of life, in my view, would have to have been the origin of the first self-replicating molecule, the first molecule capable of making copies of itself, which is what DNA is extremely good at. But the first genetic molecule would not have been DNA because DNA is a what's been called a high-tech replicator. It requires uh, elaborate protein enzymatic infrastructure in order to do its replication. And you don't have DNA without protein, and you don't have protein without DNA, and so therefore we have a catch-22. The RNA world hypothesis gets around that, potentially, because RNA is both a replicator, potentially a replicator, although not a very good one, it's not as good as, as DNA, and it also is an enzyme, or can act as an enzyme, as a catalyst, uh, although it's not as good as protein. And so the idea is that the origin, that the first self-replicating molecule and the first enzyme was RNA, combined, combining the two roles. And that later, the replication function was usurped by DNA, 
and the enzyme function was usurped by protein and DNA causes or influences, controls the synthesis of protein. So that's the RNA world hypothesis and it's probably the front runner at the moment as the as a theory of abiogenesis and um, I think it looks promising. Thanks for the question. And I did do a podcast called What I Got Wrong About COVID as a follow-up to that, but I will go back on Joe Rogan's show. But you, if you want to subscribe to Uncomfortable Conversations, then you can find it there. Um, just because we're getting a bit bro-heavy, uh, can the first female of the species go to the mic over there and go for it over here? Thanks. Hi, Richard. I'm delighted to be in the same room as you tonight. Thank you. I'm sure I can speak for everyone here. You're a real hero to us all, especially to me. Yeah, you're like um, like David Bowie's song, Hero. I think of that song and I think of what you've done for humanity. And, yeah, so um, I just um, wanted to um, ask you, um, according to neuroscience, um, what mind-changing really is, is a learning machine incessantly and simultaneously burning in and sanding away. So you're standing a bit close to the microphone. Could sorry. you go, sorry. According to neuroscience, what mind changing really is, is a learning machine incessantly and simultaneously burning in and sanding away encoded information. And if our brains work by these laws of physics, I was just wondering if you've had a paradigm shift over time as to not being totally on board with Sam Harris's view on free will with determinism. I, um, so I, I think the, yeah, I always hate the. Just if you're not familiar with Sam Harris and free will, I think the question is, do we have do we have free will? Yeah, I always hate the free will question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I often parrot Christopher Hitchens' answer to, "Do you have free will?" He said, "I have no choice." I, I suppose I do have to be a determinist. I suppose I do have to have to, um, as a physicalist, as a materialist, I have, do have to believe um, that what we do is determined. The uh, and free will is an illusion, and it's extremely hard to understand that, to believe that, because it doesn't feel like an illusion. But of course, it wouldn't. That's what illusions are like. You don't feel like it. Um, I feel as though I'm making decisions all the time. Um, there are as a, a rather dominant school of thought among philosophers who call themselves compatibilists. Um, and compatibilists believe that on the one hand they are determined, but on the other, other hand that doesn't in any way diminish the value of free will. And for example, um, they don't take the view that if you're a determinist, therefore um, you shouldn't hold people responsible for their actions. You, the, you, you should hold them responsible. You should, you should feel guilt really means something, and, and you might even believe in punishment, even if you are a, de a determinist, if you're a compatibilist. The philosophers that I respect tend to be compatibilists. I cannot quite grasp it. Have you seen the, f the episode of Forty Towers where Basil beats his car because it won't, it won't start? <laughs> I, I sort of feel that if you are a, really take determinism seriously, you, you should not punish people any more than Basil should have beaten his car. It, it's not its fault, and, and it's not a person's fault either if you're a determinist, but I'm, I, get, I get beaten around the head by Dan Dennett if I say that, because, because <laughs> he's a compatibilist. I've never heard of anybody um, going into a court of law, a, a prisoner, and saying, Milad, it wasn't me that did it, it was my genes, or, or it, was, <laughs> it, was my, it was my molecules. 
And in a way, why not? Because after all, insanity is taken as a, as a defense, as a legal defense. So um, in a way you might say, well, why, why wouldn't um, genes or molecules be equally a legal defense? But these are deep waters and I tend to flounder <laughs> in such deep waters. Um, <laughs> I mean, we sort of do do that, don't we? In the sense that there's that famous case of the, the shooter in America who, who, wanted to, who wrote a letter and said that he wanted his brain to be uh, autopsied afterwards. And it was found that he had a huge tumour growing on yes, part of his yes. brain. And Sam Harris's point about that is, well, it's tumours all the way down for all of us, yeah, really. There's yes. always a biological, there's yes. always something going on in your head that yes. You didn't author. Um, but if you take that seriously, then, then you would never actually punish anybody. Only to the extent of deterring others, yeah. Deterring others or pest control, yes. And also, just another very interesting wrinkle in that, with, that Sam Harris also denies that we even have the illusion of free will. He says if you actually pay close attention when you're deciding whether or not to have Chinese or Italian for dinner tonight, if you're going out to dinner, it'll go around in your head for a while, and then at some point you'll decide on one of them. Yeah. And the reason why you decided on it is completely opaque even to you. So if you actually pay attention, we don't even feel like we have free will. But that's... I, I get that with getting up in the morning. I, I never quite know why I get up at the moment than I do. It's, it's, <laughs> I, it's, it, it, it's anyway. plausible that the decision was taken 10 seconds earlier and I didn't know about it, which, which, for which there is neurological evidence, by the way. Yeah. Next question. Hello. My question is generally, how do you feel about memes, knowing that you sort of coined the term in 1976 and it's run off to meme cat videos? And, like, just how do you feel in general about the trajectory that that's gone on and whether that lends towards misinformation? I, I didn't so the that. idea of a meme, uh, Richard coined that term in 1976, and it lay dormant for 30 years, and then all of a sudden we've got Grumpy Cat and Doge Dog and Sad Ben Affleck. It didn't exactly lie dormant. <laughs> it, it, I mean, there were Journal of Memetics was, was, was part of it, and, and various books, actually rather we, a lot of books about them. We didn't have Doge Dog, Richard. No, me, me, memes are units of cultural in inheritance, which are um, analogous to genes, because... Um, um, at the end of the selfish gene, which, which was all about the gene as the unit of selection, I wanted to make the point that any self-replicating entity would do the job or could do the job of being a unit of selection, unit of dominion selection. And on other planets, for example, if we ever discovered life on other planets, we would, I would expect it to be, I'd be pretty certain it would be Darwinian life, and therefore there would be some equivalent of a gene, but it probably wouldn't be DNA. So although the whole book had been about DNA as the unit of selection, it didn't have to be that. And then I said, well, maybe we don't even have to go to other planets. Maybe there's a, a new replicator staring us in the face. And this was the meme, the unit of culture, unit of cultural inheritance, unit of imitation. So when imitation... When a, when a clothes fashion spreads through, th through the population, when I use this example, I think of the reverse baseball cap as being a, as being a, a, a meme that spreads as an epidemic through the, and, and a very annoying one too, <laughs> through, through the population. Um, or a craze at a school. You know how um, at schools, um, crazes for a particular kind of toy, a particular game spread like an epidemic, really very like an epidemic, with the same epidemiological time course. So that means that there is a cultural replicator. There is something equivalent to DNA spreading through the population from brain to brain. And the internet, of course, provides a rich ecosystem for the spread of memes. And the name to anybody under about 25 years old, uh, the, the word meme tends, tends to mean a a picture with a with a caption that and, and it's a subset of a meme to the extent that it spreads through the population 
spreads through the meme sphere and, and may mutate, may change. That makes it a meme. It's, it, it's an interesting meme if it gives rise to evolution, if it gives rise to actual evolution, if it, if, if it evolves, in other words, if selection favors some memes over others. And that does happen because a tune, if it's a catchy, catchy tune, the very word catchy reminds one of a virus, a virus of the mind. I wrote an essay called Viruses of the Mind about, about memes. Um, a catchy tune will spread through the population. People will whistle it or sing it, hum it, and others will copy them and whistle it. Um, so that's a catchy tune and that's a, a spreadable meme, a meme with high survival value in the memosphere. So there is a, a potential for a Darwinian evolution going on. And when I wrote, when I, when I invented the word meme, um, the internet hadn't been invented, and the internet, as I say, does provide a, a, a very rich ecosystem for the spread of memes in the original sense and also in the under 25 years old sense. And I think the questioner was sort of saying it doesn't bother you that it has come to be associated with the flotsam and jetsam of the internet? Well, it is a special case, and I'd, I'd rather it was used in the original sense, but, but, as a, but yes, it, it is a special case. Yeah. Uh, we have about five minutes left, so apologies to everybody. We'll take one more from each side. Thank Go you. Uh, thank you, Professor, for coming here. It's lovely to see you. Uh, it seems that Charles Darwin was still believing in hereditable uh, acquired characteristics at the time of the joint publication, whereas Wallace specifically wrote against the Can you just, can you just go a little bit further away from the mic? It's a bit hard to hear. Yeah, thanks, Kerfoot. So, and apparently August Weissman settled this Lamarckian dynamic that it doesn't exist because 22 generations of mice or 20 had their tails cut off and not one of them produced offspring without a tail. And I can't seem to find in my Google searching that it was confirmed whether that they had offspring with more dense tails or stronger tails, which I would have guessed would be the Lamarckian dynamic. Could you please steel man a case for Lamarckian revivalism using what we know about epigenetic inheritance? What's the, okay. what's the, what's the strongest possible case for Lamarck's yeah. theory of um, evolution? L Lamarck um, pr was, was a predecessor of Darwin as a, as a theorist of evolution. He believed in a, a kind of evolution. It was a very strange kind of evolution, actually. He thought that um, all creatures were on a kind of ladder and they moved up the ladder. Um, it's really very different from Darwin's own conception of a branching tree. And um, he believed in the inheritance of acquired characteristics and uh, uh, the question of des describing an experiment by the German biologist August Weissmann who cut off the tails of mice for generation after generation after generation. And unsurprisingly, the, there was no tendency for the mice to be born without tails. Um, he might have looked at circumcision among certain religious groups. Would have we, saved the mice a whole lot of hassle. Yeah, yes. Um, uh, actually, it, it, that's not a very good experiment to have done at all. I mean, I, I'm a great admirer of Weissmann. He, he, he actually was a, was a major contributor, but, but not, not for that experiment. Lamarckian evolution would be not really about injury, like um, cutting off a tail. It would be more about... Um, Lamarck talked about, the talked about the principle of use and disuse. It's things like if you exercise the muscles of a particular part of the body, then they grow bigger. That's, that's obviously true. That's what people do exercise, bodybuilders do. And if there were any tendency for the children of bodybuilders to be born with great bulging muscles, that would be what Lamarck had in mind. And he thought that that was an, a good explanation for adaptive evolution. 
He thought that animals would, be, would strive for a particular outcome. So he, the example of the giraffe striving for leaves up at the top of the tree and striving and striving, stretching its neck, stretching its neck. And um, then because its neck got stretched with this striving, um, its children would be born with slightly longer necks. And this was his explanation for the evolution of the giraffe's neck. It's, it's wrong. It, not only is it factually wrong because acquired characteristics are not inherited, but even if they were, it would not be a big enough theory to account for evolution. If you think about something like the evolution of the eye, where vision gets more precise as uh, the generations go by, you could get more, more acuity of vision. That is not going to come about through striving for anything. It's not going to come about as a principle of use and disuse. What if I squint really hard when I'm reading? Yeah, you, I mean, th th that kind of thing would work, but the lens doesn't become washed clear by photons whizzing through it. It's not, I mean, the, the detail, the, the, the precise precision details of, of the eye not just the eye, but, but everything inside the body, the details of biochemistry, that can only come about through a Darwinian mechanism where the slightest improvement in, in, in however internal, however detailed, however small, the slightest improvement which makes it more likely to survive will, be, will get inherited. So that the Darwinian theory can account for all improvement, whereas the Lamarckian theory can only apply to, can only explain improvement in things like muscles getting bigger, when you, when you use them. So the Lamarckian theory cannot work. It's, it's, it's not a big enough theory to account for it. The question is more concerned with, is there any evidence for inheritance of acquired characteristics? And um, he used the word epigenetics, which is a much banded around word. Epigenetics is actually just about embryology. Epigenetics is the phenomenon whereby, as embryology proceeds, different genes get turned on in different tissues. So in the liver, for example, only a certain subset of genes get, get turned on, even though the whole, nut, the whole genome is present in every cell. In different tissues, only a smaller number of genes among the, the genome get turned on. So that's epigenetics. Um, the reason it's become associated with Lamarckism is that some people have suggested that the differential turning on of genes can be inherited into the next generation and possibly into the grandchild generation. There is a certain amount of rather weak evidence that that, that that can happen, but it doesn't really rescue the Lamarckian theory of evolution, partly for the reason I've just said, and partly because it only goes on for a couple of generations at most, if it, if it happens at all. Thanks. Just before we take the last question, if you're a VIP ticket holder, then when this ends, uh, just stay in your seats and, uh, and you'll be able to, to, to stay here while everybody else leaves. Um, if, uh, if you want to hear this conversation back again, it will be released in the future on my podcast, Uncomfortable Conversations. If you want to hear more conversations like this, then you should subscribe to Uncomfortable Conversations as well. And Richard Dawkins will be engaging with the VIP ticket holders at the end of the show. Go for it. Hi, mate. Uh, I'm in 37, and over the past year, I've recently discovered that I have ADHD, um, which leads to sort of questions of where did it come from in evolutionary, evolutionary purpose and whatnot. So I wondered if you would hazard a guess as to sort of where it would have come from and other, uh, alongside along uh, other neurological development or, or disorders like ADHD and autism, and if there's a purpose for it all along that, that path. I cannot speak specifically about ADHD, and I'm sorry about that. No, 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 if there's a... Um, but, I mean, it is, it is conceivable that certain 
psychological variants do have some um, evolutionary value, some, some, some genetic... Um, I don't even know whether ADHD has a genetic component, I'm afraid. It does. It, it does? Okay. So if, if, if it does, then, and, and if it exists in a significant number of people, um, then it, it's worth asking the question, has there been a, a selection pressure in favour of it? And yes, there, there, there's a possibility for um, so-called polymorphism. That would be a, a, the presence of more than one genetic type actually under positive selection. Um, and this is known in wild animals um, to some extent. There can be selection in favour of variation, especially if the, the rarer type has an advantage because it's rare. And so, and, th and this is this is something that uh, that does lead to a polymorphism. You can see that if 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 by virtue of being rare, it it has selective value, then it will be maintained in the population. I can't, for the moment, think why ADHD should be uh, should have an advantage when it's rare. I did once think why um, short-sightedness might. Um, if you imagine that, um, but, well, in, in fact, it's, it's true that very short-sighted people would be capable of, before, in the, before the invention of lenses or glasses, very short-sighted people might have been very good at fine needlework, fine um, manipulation, um, close up to the eyes. And, and you could say something like, in a society, short-sighted people, because they had this unique ability to do fine precision work, would have, been, would have had an advantage in in rare numbers, then you could have um, selection in favour of a certain number of short-sighted people. Whether you could make a case for ADHD along those lines, I'd be interested to know. I, mean, I think it's not impossible that you could. Please thank the very far-sighted Richard Dawkins. If you enjoyed this episode of The Poetry of Reality, you might consider subscribing on thepoetryofreality.com. That way you get the content without the ads. Anyway, thank you for listening and see you next time. Mm -hmm.